0: third verse of the hymn, in blazing light your cross reveals the truth we dimly knew. What trivial debts are owed to us, how great our debt to you. This morning I would like to speak about that debt and indebtedness and how we respond to it in our lives. I was watching television last week and Tim Cook the CEO of Apple, was being interviewed when they just came out with all their new technology equipment. And he said something that I remembered. Our mission in life is to give you something that you don't know you wanted, but after you get it, you couldn't understand how you lived without it. It seems to me that the mission of the church is to give you something that you didn't know you needed But after you have it, you don't understand how you lived without it. And what it is we need most is the awareness of how we have been forgiven and how we are now called and able to forgive each other. Beginning in the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, verses 21 through 35, Jesus tells a parable about what that debt is that we have within us. And I hope that we can have ears to hear it in a new way. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, if a member of the church or a brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you seven times seventy. For this reason... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents, that's about 100,000 bucks, was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees before him, saying, "'Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything.'" And out of pity for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But that same servant, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him ten bucks. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave or servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your own fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my Heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Apparently, we are hardwired for the need for justice and fairness, the scales of justice to be balanced and we keep a written or an unwritten tally sheet about most of the people in our lives and institutions, whether it's biological, evolutionary, uh, or psychological, or spiritual. Uh, we have these, this human thing in us that unless there's, for some sociopathic reason, things are not fair, we don't know what to do. Now, fairness helps keep community together. Uh, but Stephen Still, we keep that running balance sheet. Uh, marriages always do it, the assets and the liabilities. And if you don't make enough uh, you know, savings uh, uh, account entries, then you get out of whack and the marriage gets in trouble. It, it turns out that since we live with this sort of balance of justice and fairness thing, the quickest way that we know how to make uh, things back into balance is through exacting a price revenge someone wrongs us we have to get our pound of flesh we carry the grudge retribution has to happen every Christmas in our house when the girls were young um, we would run down as early as we could to see what Santa Claus had brought and to make sure that each had a chair to make sure that it looked as much as even as it could because inevitably the girls would come down to look at uh, what Santa had brought and, and and they would look at their stuff and only within seconds they'd turn around and start looking at their sisters to make sure that it was fair in fact it wasn't just when they were little by the way um, some of that behavior still happens and not just at Christmas can you imagine If you've ever grown up a parent, you realize that this conversation with a child or children about fairness is always before you. How many times have you heard the whine? It's just not fair. It's not fair that I can't wear those clothes. It's not fair I can't go to that party. My curfew is not fair. It's not fair. I have to do all those chores. My friends don't have to do them. And if you're a good parent, you sit down patiently with your children and you try to explain to them that sometimes things may not seem fair, but in the end, hopefully, by God's time, they will be. And if you're less than patient, you probably scream out, You're right. Life's not fair. Get over it. (laughs) But are adults really that different? We all keep score on our balance sheets and they are carefully devised, the assets and the liabilities. When something happens to throw it out of whack, somebody hurts us, somebody is now indebted to us, we don't get rest until we can bring it back. And we'll, as I said, grab our pound of flesh in order to do it. It's not only us, by the way. They've done studies on chimps. They've, asked, they've given chimps food, grapes on the one hand and pieces of cucumber on the other. Two chimps asked to do a task. They gave one chimp the grapes. Chimps love grapes, apparently. And the other chimp the cucumbers. Chimps eat cucumbers, but they don't love them. After about two times, the chimp that was getting the cucumbers refused to do his task anymore because he was watching the other chimp get Grapes. He knows what's fair. And then if they continued that experiment, the chimp that was getting grapes chose not to eat them anymore because he knew it wasn't fair that his friendship wasn't getting grapes too. Apparently all of creation is somehow caught up in this justice-fairness reality. Now, let me say that justice is often in the eye of the beholder. What is just for a firstborn child may not seem to be just to his siblings, or vice versa. What is just for some may not feel like justice for others. And depending on our own social and cultural and religious and personal expectations, justice really is all over the map. Take the Old Testament. It says when a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod— and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if the slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. That's just. Slavery is just? And so is beating them as long as it doesn't kill them? Or if a man commits adultery, the punishment is different than if a woman does when justice requires stoning Until death. Sounds a little bit like Ray Rice's kind of justice with his wife, Janie Palmer, who apparently talked back to him. Knocking her out with a punch in the face, he was bringing things back into balance. Now, we're all in an uproar over whether justice was served by the NFL's original response to suspend him for two games what may seem like justice for some is not always justice for all. I wonder if our need for justice is apparent in our quick poll reversal, by the way, of how we have changed our minds in the last three weeks after the gruesome videos of the ISIS uh, event. Three weeks ago, most of the population was not in favor of reengaging in the Middle East. Now most of the population is. Somebody has to pay the price. Something does need to happen to stop it. That's for sure. My only hope, my only prayer is that we don't act sentimentally, but intentionally, carefully. For if I think it's true, our actions after 9 11 were not well thought out. Then, as of now, we wanted a pound of flesh. All this said, you can see why Jesus and Jesus' words are so radical. Still are. Living in a culture where justice and righteousness was clearly defined by the social roles and rules, male, female, Jew, Gentile, first child, second child, Pharisee, Sadducee, Roman citizen, growing up in a temple where there are 422 laws of the Torah and the retribution clearly spelled out if they were broken, Jesus steps into the world and instead of justice and retribution, Jesus talks about forgiveness. Take Exodus twenty-one, twenty-two. When people are fighting and they injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, and stripe for stripe. And Jesus comes along. And turns it all on its head by saying, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, you give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Do we see how radical this is? Or take this morning's passage. Peter, knowing that Jesus was trying to show us another way than that strict Pharisee way of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, thinks that he can one-up Jesus in the Jeopardy contest. And so he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive? He knew the rabbis said three. For us, really, it's two, isn't it? Or even just one. What is it? The adage goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But the rabbi said three times for forgiveness. Peter walks up to Jesus. How many times, Jesus? Seven. And Peter expects Jesus to say, yes, Jesus. Yes, Peter, good and faithful servant. You get it. And what Jesus really says is, you don't get it. Still, Peter, you don't get it it's not 7 but 7 times 70 and after peter picked his jaw up off the floor as we should be doing he then told them this parable this radical parable you can't one up jesus the parable simply goes that this guy a servant owed the lord a lot of money the lord called it into into debt And the servant shows up and he doesn't have it. And so the Lord says, okay, we'll sell you and everybody with you and everything you have to pay off the debt. And the servant hits the ground on his knees and begs and the Lord forgives the debt. Now remember, parables are not allegories, So God and the Lord are not supposed to be exactly the same thing. It's a parable. So this guy that just had his debt forgiven leaves, sees a friend servant who owed him ten bucks, grabs him by the throat, and threatens to throw him in jail until he pays. He doesn't have the money. He does throw him in jail. And Jesus ends it by saying, ingratitude is the basis of our inability to forgive. For once we understand how much we have been forgiven, how can we not forgive our neighbor's? And then he says, golly, I hate that part. He says, and the Lord our God will do to you also if you are not willing to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Maybe we can't know what our own forgiveness is all about from God unless we learn to forgive others. Maybe we can't learn how to forgive others unless we know what our forgiveness is all about from God. Maybe the Lord's Prayer says it, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but could also just as well say, oh God, help us forgive others as we have been forgiven by you. So what is it, this forgiveness stuff? I mean, what is it? Sometimes it's easier, I think, to know what it's not before we know what it is. First, forgiveness is not condoning or diminishing the wrong It is not saying, it's okay, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. That's not what it is. Sometimes it's a very big deal. It's not enabling either through denial or turning a blind's eye or thinking that we're a martyr by hanging in there over and over again. Nor is it reciprocation A lot of times we say, okay, I'll forgive her if she apologizes. But true forgiveness comes whether an apology does or not. It is for, given, given before anything else has been given back. It is for, given. It comes first without any expectation of response. Our forgiveness is not about what someone else does, but what we do. Maybe this is how we can forgive those who are no longer with us. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. How many times have we heard, forgive and forget, forgive and forget, hogwash? There are some things so bad you cannot forget. But apparently we can forgive. Forgiveness is not necessarily about no longer feeling the pain and the hurt of the wrong. Sometimes the pain can last a lifetime. It comes and goes and comes and goes. Maybe the grace of it is that every time it comes, we are given one more opportunity out of the 7 times 70 times to forgive again. Which is to say the last thing that forgiveness is not, it is not a one-time event Seven times 70, Jesus said, which is to say, we do it so many times we lose count. And it's finally not about neglecting justice. You call the police, then you begin to work on forgiveness. I'm sorry, forgive me. There's one more thing still. Still. It's also finally not about reconciliation every time and restoration of the relationship. There are some circumstances when it is imperative not to go back in to that relationship, especially if there is abuse. But it is also just as imperative that you seek a way to forgive. So what is it? It is giving up the need for retribution and revenge. It is giving up our need to exact a price. It is a shift in thinking toward someone who has wronged us so that our desire to get back at them has diminished and our desire for their good has increased hard to imagine think about those in your life that you might need to forgive maybe it's yourself maybe it's even God think about those in your life who need to forgive you it's almost impossible to imagine being able to let go of that feeling of get back or I owe them and instead start feeling the need for their good But Jesus said, we must. We must. Because it is the way of God, and it is the way of joy, and it is the way of happiness, and it is the way of true humanity. So how do we do it? We first start with our willingness to do it. Okay, God, I'm not sure I can forgive them, but I'm willing to start And with that willingness, we start praying for God to give us the strength to find, to turn our will into an intention rather than a distraction. We begin to imagine what forgiveness looks like by remembering this parable, oh yeah, God has forgiven me this much, then certainly I can figure out how to forgive them this much. Let me say this does not come immediately. It takes time. It is as much about grief as it is anything, and grief takes time. We cannot expect immediate forgiveness any more than can we expect immediate healing after a great loss. One of my daughters hates conflict, and so anytime something happens that she perceives as her fault, she runs to one of us and says, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's not so much now as it used to be." And what she wants to do is, is to clean it up and get out of the conflict because she just can't deal with, with the stress of it. But sometimes someone was telling me, a brother hurt his little three-year-old sister and then he went to apologize to her and she said, I don't want your sorries. It takes Time. Sometimes our unwillingness to forgive someone is the only apparent power we have left over them. At least, we believe it is. But in reality, it's we who are giving power back to them. Because our inability to forgive only eats away at us until we forgive them. We are never released from that. They still have the power. One more technique besides prayer that is helpful, and that is that the best way, I think, to begin forgiveness is to start feeling the incredible love of God that is real to us and in our hearts. We fill our hearts up with this love of God like a balloon, and then we imagine that person we're having trouble forgiving, and we imagine that love in us simply being transferred from our full heart into their heart. We imagine love, our love heart, going into their heart. And what happens, of course, is in imagining that, something has changed. A woman named Sujatha Balinja, who is now the director of the National Restorative Justice Project, was the youngest child of Indian immigrants. She grew up in Pennsylvania. As far back as she could remember, she was abused in every worst way, by her father. In her early teens, she started dyeing her hair purple and cutting herself because of her self-loathing. She thought the reason she hated herself was because she was an immigrant in a suburban world. But when she turned 14 years old two years before her father died, she realized, she came to consciousness what her father had done to her. Despite her tormented childhood, she excelled in school and ended up at Harvard Ratcliffe, wanting to get a, uh, go to law school so she could then begin to prosecute child molesters. After college, she moved to New York. She worked with battered children uh, and women, and she met a boy who won a fellowship to Mumbai, India, so she went back with him. While in New York, she had had plenty of therapy in hopes of getting over her abuse. But when she moved to India, she had a breakdown. She knew that she had to get herself together if she was going to make it into law school. And so she began to ask around where she could get help. And everybody there pointed her to this city, this community called Karam Salah, which is the home of a large Tibetan Buddhist community in India, or Uh, in Tibet, where she heard horror stories of the Tibetans' uh, incredible uh, uh, loss and uh, pillage and murder by the invading Chinese army. And she couldn't understand it because she heard these stories, yet everyone was was doing fine. So she asked him, how can you even be standing? Why are you even smiling after what you've been through? And everyone would say the same thing. Forgiveness. Then the family she was staying with told her uh, about uh, that some people would write a letter to the Dalai Lama uh, for advice and suggested she try it. So she did. She wrote her later letter saying that her anger was killing her, but it motivates me to work for justice. So, how do you work on behalf of the oppressed and abused people without anger as a motivating force? She dropped the letter off at a booth and was told to come back a week later. When she did, instead of getting a return letter from the Dalai Lama, she was personally invited to sit with the Dalai Lama for an hour. He gave her two pieces of advice. The first, no surprise, was to meditate. She did, or she said, I can do that. The second, he said, was to align herself with the enemy and to consider opening her heart to them. She laughed out loud in his face, saying, I'm going to law school to lock these guys up. I'm not aligning myself with anybody. Then he reached over and gingerly patted her on the knee and said, Okay, just meditate. When she returned to the U.S., she signed up for a 10-day intensive meditation class. And on the final day, she had a spontaneous experience of total forgiveness for her father. She described it as a complete relinquishment of anger, hatred, and the desire for retribution and revenge. Now, instead of justice, her life's work is about forgiveness Instead of anger motivating her, it's grace and love that does so. This is what Jesus wants us to know. By God's grace, all things are possible. Even if it takes so many times, we lose count. And if Jesus is right, we really don't have any choice unless we want to stay tormented forever. May these words be for us a transition. Amen.